Welcome to Mnemonic, a podcast about memory. My name is Ryan Trussell. I'm a writer and a father. And each week I'll tell you a story about my life, threading connections between the past and the present moment, finding resonances that often even surprise me. Just a quick note, Uh, these are autobiographical stories that involve people other than myself. I've done my best to protect the identities of those I could without sacrificing clarity in the stories. And in all cases, I've done my level best to make sure the people who aren't me come out looking the best they can. So if you see yourself in any of these stories, please keep that in mind, and I hope that you understand. All right, thank you very much. Episode 14, It Is Now All That I Hold Dear. My father went to California. I remember when he came back, and I remember how long it felt like he was gone. There is dispute about how long he was actually gone, when he actually left. But I remember exactly when he came home. A movie theater had just opened in town, and on the next half day, Jesse and Kevin and I went there and saw FX2. My father came to pick me up, and walking out into the bright lobby, my eyes had a hard time adjusting to the light. My father called to me, but I had a hard time locating him. I followed the voice. My eyes settled into the daylight, and I saw him, his hair longer and grayer, and he sported a beard I'd never seen him wear before. I almost didn't recognize him. He remembers watching the first Gulf War on CNN while in California. January and February 1991. FX2 was released that May. We can use these cultural events like carbon dating. He doesn't remember being gone that long. I was 11, recently moved to a new town, and still not yet over my father moving out when I was young. For me, it felt like years. One thing that cannot be disputed, the last time I saw my father before he left for California, He let me borrow a gray Hanes sweatshirt to wear home to my mother's. During the time he was out west, weeks, months, I became perhaps unhealthily attached to the sweatshirt, wearing it all the time. I imagine it still smelled like my father and somehow made him feel closer. When he returned, older and wilder than when he had left, I did not hand back the sweatshirt. Like all magical talismans, it had been imbued with power. It was definitely my favorite piece of clothing. And inexplicably, my senior year of high school, I opted to wear it almost every day. There is photo evidence of this. I took a picture with every member of the AP Calculus class that year. And from photo to photo, my hair grows and is cut, my beard is stubble, and then scraggly, then shaved off. But in each, I am wearing the gray sweatshirt. I was not a superstitious person, but that sweatshirt had a different kind of hold on me. I decided to try to take the AP Calculus exam that year without taking the course, working on my own and meeting the teacher after school for private lessons. And despite the warm weather on exam day, I insisted on wearing the sweatshirt for good luck. I failed the test. To be fair, it wasn't the sweatshirt's fault. I hadn't even taken the class. 
That was during the final weeks of my senior year of high school. I graduated less than a month later, wearing the gray, gray sweatshirt under my graduation robe, even though it was particularly warm June afternoon. Perhaps that was symbolic of all the poor choices I was about to make. I started college in the fall, having decided to attend UMass Boston as a commuter. If you had guessed that a kid who wears the same gray sweatshirt every day because he associates it with a childhood trauma might have a difficult time with change, well, congratulations. I spent the next three years bouncing from college to college, following no coherent course of study, just simply ambling through. Until finally, in what should have been the final semester of what should have been my senior year, I did what anyone would have done. I went back to high school. Not in any literal sense, it wasn't 21 Jump Street, but I fell in with a crowd of high school seniors and attempted to relive my senior year again. I think it's fair to say that I was probably suffering from some deep psychological issues that were going unaddressed. I was renting a bedroom in a house, my first time living away from home, and my housemates were nurses who worked long, odd shifts. I probably couldn't have been more isolated. If I had disappeared, it would have been days, maybe even a week before anyone noticed. So nobody noticed that I started hanging out with a bunch of high school kids. Nobody really cast a sideways glance or give me a good tut-tut. I didn't do anything unseemly. I was 21, but I never bought them alcohol. I never invited them into my house. I think I just wanted to be 17 again. We played a lot of card games. But it didn't take long for the stakes to be raised. By early that spring, it was clear I had fallen in love with one of them. I'm not going to mention her name. I feel like I owe her her privacy that she had no agency in being cast in this tragedy. And I don't mean to suggest there was nothing special about her. There certainly was. But in truth, if it hadn't been her, it would have been someone. I was a ticking time bomb. Initially, I told no one. I would just participate in my little misadventures with my little gang and then go home to my tiny bedroom apartment and write songs about her. I must have known it was wrong, or the very least untoward, because the lyrics I was writing were all in code. My best friend from high school would come home on college breaks, and I would play him the songs. He'd bring his guitar and play along, scrawling the chord changes on the lyric sheets I gave him. It was only after playing these songs for 15 years that I explained the what the hell I was singing about. Even the titles were inscrutable. Zero One, Aztec Girl, Fred Astaire, Save Your Rain for a Rainy Day. Oubliette. I was leaving clues out in the open, then daring someone to catch me. The night of their senior prom, she called me, probably close to midnight. The prom was over, and they were all headed down to the beach. She invited me to meet them. So I drove down to meet them in the middle of the night. They were all ambling along, laughing and goofing, and pretending to push each other into the ocean. She was down at the very end of the jetty, sitting by herself. I can't remember my exact thoughts at that moment, but I can only imagine I thought it kismet that she was off by herself. I could go talk to her alone, maybe tell her my feelings. I reached the end of the jetty, and she turned towards me. I didn't recognize it then, and shame on me for my blindness. But even though she smiled at me, looking at her now in my memory, by God, does she look sad? We sat side by side, 
and I think I was probably incapable of silence at that point in my life, so sure was I of my own eloquence. I was much quieter than usual. I said little. We just sat and watched the stars. I met her again late at night at the local high school. She was hanging upside down off the small set of monkey bars in the back. I had told her over the many nights we had all spent together about my gray sweatshirt, about how much it had meant to me, how it felt to wear it while my dad was gone, and how I had worn it so often in those ten years. And that night, alone, I gave it to her. For luck. She had a big exam coming up as well. But I was always trying to tell her how I felt, and the only way I knew how. Because words were frightening. Words were only to be used in code. So I gave her the thing that meant the most in the world to me. I have been prone to bizarre and esoteric romantic gestures before, none of the recipients of which ever recognized the import, the significance of. But this time was different. She took the gray sweatshirt from my hands and brought it to her chest. And she cried. I've seen photos of the gang on their test day. She had the gray sweatshirt wrapped around her waist. Maybe it did bring her luck. She did much better than I did. That night, I wrote Shade. Shade was the Rosetta Stone. It is still one of my favorite songs. It's just a really beautiful one to sing and to play. And even though the lyrics make very little literal sense, I began driving around with a guitar in my trunk so that, if the opportunity presented itself, I could play it for her, and she would learn my true feelings. It starts out like this, in the hollowed halls of this museum. That was in the reference to the high school, a place to me filled with relics of an older, ancient time. I was 21. Time moved different then. Another line goes, I will shield you from the shining rains, dress you up in my favorite clothes. It's a line I imagine being heard by some as misogynistic or domineering. Now the truth can be told. I loved a girl so much, I gave her an old ratty Hanes sweatshirt. Near the end, I sing, Underneath the day the night has left, You dropped a solitary tear. I brought it so, to dampen my chest. It's now all that I hold dear. Maybe I should have asked why she was crying. I recorded the song, dragooning other musicians and singers to help me make it as lush and beautiful as I knew it could. We recorded three different versions, and I mixed them and burned them onto a CD. My time was running out. She was leaving for college within days by the time I had finished. I arrived at her house mid-morning, CD tucked into my front pocket. Her father came barreling out the front door, arm outstretched. I don't know if I've seen an angrier index finger. Get out of here, he commanded. She came out into the porch. It isn't him, Dad, she said resignedly. This is a friend. It had been a case of mistaken identity, but I couldn't shake the feeling I deserved it. The father apologized, made some vague comments about another boy, and they invited me in. She was packing her things for school, and I sat at her desk, and we spoke of minor things. I saw a gray sweatshirt and a suitcase. 
I left with the CD still in my pocket. In that moment, I had learned something about the sometimes awful burden love puts upon us. And I didn't want to be a further burden. I had occasion to spend some time with her a few years later, but I always kept a safe distance. So embarrassed and ashamed was I about what had and hadn't transpired between us. We had friendly interactions, joked around a little bit, and once, in the middle of the night, she gave me some advice that, in its own labyrinthine way, led me to the girl who'd become my wife. I can't say I'd done anything to really deserve it, but I'm thankful for it all the same. Sometime later, my father was cleaning out some stuff and gave me old clothes. In the pile was the exact gray sweatshirt he'd given me that I'd given her. The one that I put such meaning and weight upon, it had nearly suffocated us. He had a closet full of them. Thanks as always to Joel McKenna, as well as Amy Reichenbach and Daryl Morey. Episodes of Mnemonic can be found in mnemonicpodcast.tumblr.com, mnemonicpodcast.soundcloud.com, and also in the iTunes store. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Have a great night. Thank you.